From the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, I'm Robert Caceres, and this is The Reframe. My guest today is Dr. Kathleen Smith. Dr. Smith is an author, therapist, and associate faculty member at the Bowen Center in Washington, D.C. She's written extensively on a variety of mental health-related topics, and she spoke with me about the public nature of her work and her willingness to self-disclose in her writing. I think it's a misconception that you're not supposed to have anxiety if you're a counselor (laughs) or that you don't have challenging relationships, you know, with people in your family or your children or whatever, you know, and everyone knows, everyone kind of knows that if you're human, right? That's sort of par for the course. But I think counselors have, you know, um, especially with their presence online or on the internet, that they have to be kind of this robot you know, enigma. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but nothing, none of your personality can kind of leak out or people will think you're a weirdo or whatnot. Um, I'm pretty relaxed about sharing about my own life because I am a writer and I think that that's just what I'm choosing to write about. And I have never come across anybody who's a client of mine who's been weirded out by it. Most people say, oh yeah, I looked you up and I saw your, your Twitter or you know, I read this weird fangirl thing you wrote, and I do cringe a little bit because I am human and it is a little embarrassing to be examined like that, but uh, I haven't encountered anybody that has been scared off by it. I'm sure people have, but I never have to interact with them, so it's okay. <laughs> Welcome to The Reframe. Over the next hour... You'll hear Dr. Smith share about the challenging and rewarding nature of her creative endeavors, highlight her digital strategies for marketing a private practice, and discuss her work and involvement with the Bowen Center. Dr. Smith also describes the fundamental principles that guide her clinical work. One of mine is to step back and let people manage their own lives, and that's a really hard one for me because I have great ideas about what people should be doing (laughs) or why they should break up with someone, right, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But, you know, if I can kind of hold on to that one and, you know, say, that's different than distancing or, or saying, this is not my problem, you know, good luck. That's not, that's different than, you know, being in the room with somebody, but also letting them be responsible for themselves. Kathleen began our conversation by recounting the personal and educational experiences that led her to pursue a career as a therapist. So I don't know if my story is common to everyone else who ended up becoming a counselor. I like to think that it is. How I kind of think about it is that uh, my mother died when I was in college. I was a sophomore, and she was diagnosed with cancer, but died very suddenly, just two weeks after she was diagnosed. So it was a very sudden death, and I definitely... Uh, became depressed afterwards. I didn't drop out of college, with, which happens frequently when, when people lose a parent, but I definitely had a hard time. I stopped going to classes. Uh, you know, I probably spent too much money on things. I was sleeping long hours during the day, but I didn't really have the vocabulary or the mental health knowledge to even articulate what I was going through. You know, words like anxiety or depression weren't really used um, growing up. I from was from a very sort of uh, evangelical background growing up in Tennessee in the South. And so, you know, it was framed in sort of um, more churchy terms or, you know, something that you're up against that's not necessarily a mental health issue. And so I don't think I was equipped uh, to kind of manage that challenge after my mom died. And, you know, I, eventually I was connected with different people who were counselors. I didn't end up going to therapy at that point in my life or to counseling. 
but I started to meet people in the profession, you know, who were family friends or uh, professionals connected to uh, the school I was going to. And it just sort of opened up as an interesting profession to me personally. I found that it fit with my personality because I hate small talk. I don't like <laughs> unstructured mingling. I want to know, you know, what's really going on with people and how they're doing and what they really want out of life. And so it naturally fit to jump into a profession where that's what you do, right? And so it, it didn't feel uncomfortable or scary because that's what I wanted to talk to people about. And so uh, even though I grew up sort of as an introvert and maybe not the most um, – maybe not the best fit of what you would imagine a person uh, who is a counselor being. I really gravitated towards that because at a very young age, all of a sudden, very you know significant things were happening in my life. And, and I wanted uh, to kind of be able to help other people talk about those things if they didn't have the, the right words or the exact understanding of what was going on with them, if that makes sense. So it sounds like initially on you had a great appreciation for the counseling profession and it seemed like something that even from the outset, it might not necessarily be an intuitive fit for someone who's a self-described introvert, that it, it did seem like a good fit. Yeah. And so what was your initial discernment process with the type of helping profession to go into of all the helping professions that happen to be out there? Well, it's actually kind of a funny story because when I graduated from college, I applied to divinity school and to counseling uh, programs, and I was accepted into two uh, that I really liked at the same school and so I received a scholarship to go to divinity school and like most counseling you know master's programs there's not a lot of financial aid right so (laughs) I felt like financially that decision was made for me and so I actually did a year of divinity school uh, which was interesting but about a year in I you know it kind of illuminated for me that I actually wanted to be a counselor. And so I would have to find some way to do that, you know, whether it was a different type of program than the one I had looked at originally. And I ended up doing an online program, uh, which was a third of the cost. And, you know, there are definitely pros and cons to doing that, but it was a way for me to be able to afford a program uh, and work another job at the same time, uh, you know, so... Yeah, so I knew I wanted to become a counselor after uh, sort of going into ministry didn't feel like the right match for me. So it was kind of chasing after me, even though I I wasn't going after it initially. And and that's where I ended up. Well, tell me more about your time as an online student. I'm somebody who I worked full time and I went to a commuter school to get both my master's and PhD and was like, I wish I would have thought about online education. And now half of the teaching I do at Wake Forest is online instruction. And I know my students are always looking for pro tips. So what were some of the things that you found like worked really well with balancing your schedule and being, you know, just a fully invested student online and getting the most out of that that process? Well, I think it definitely was a lesson in accountability, because if you're in an in-person program, you're surrounded by your classmates all the time and people who are also worried and anxious about the work that you have to do. But if you're long distance or in an online program, you don't have that accountability built into your weekly schedule. And so <laughs> you really have to be on top of it and that can it can catch up with you very quickly. So I think initially that was a challenge for me not to let it... Uh, you know, slip, not to put all these assignments off or to not follow up with all the online discussions or the readings. Um, But one of the positives of the program I was in was that it had 
in-person days for a lot of courses like interviewing skills uh, group counseling they felt like it was really important for people to be there for at least a component of it because that's not something you can necessarily do online as well and so I really appreciated being able to go in person and meet the other students a few times Um, but I think for counseling in general so much of the the education is the internship experience and that's you know you can't do that online that's in person wherever you are and so i think you know as long as you find a good site and have a really good supervisor that's such the meat of the experience in a master's program and i think because i had a great internship site and a great supervisor that was really helpful for me um, and made up for some of the the missing components for taking classes online so now reflecting back on your time as a master's student and then eventually doctoral student, what were some of those theories that you gravitated toward or what were some of those initial populations that you were especially interested in studying? Yeah, so I did uh, my internship and my master's program was with young adults who were transitioning out of foster care, which is a really underserved population because, you know, when a lot of young people turn 18 they're you know they're given a hotel room for the night or a couple nights and then they're sort of on their own and these young adults also had you know different mental health challenges and so that was sort of an added uh, you know component or an added challenge that they had and so I really enjoyed working with them and I think what that experience really illuminated for me was that People have, you know, there are so many other basic needs that a person also, you know, needs assistance with on top of the, or underneath maybe the mental health stuff. You know, I was, you know, supposed to help young people who, you know, were managing, you know, a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or, you know, um, schizoaffective disorder, right? But they also don't know that you shouldn't put a metal pot in the microwave, right? That's a really important thing to know. And so, (laughs) you know, I think what maybe a lot of counselors find with different populations is that there are these other basic needs maybe that you aren't necessarily hired to teach someone how to do that end up becoming a component of the work just because (laughs) it's, it's relevant and it comes up in the moment. And so there is an educational piece, I think, sometimes, especially with with young people, with teenagers and young adults, that's part of the work. Um, but that was sort of the the population I was interested in working with. I also had some interest in working with um, incarcerated people, but I've really touched on that more from a writing perspective. I've written a couple of Counseling Today articles on, on the people who are doing that kind of work. Um, so honestly, I was all over the place. I didn't know exactly, you know, whom I wanted to work with. I didn't exactly know what theory I wanted to use. And I think that's a really common dilemma for people. You're kind of given this buffet of theories in a single class, right? And there's not always a lot of instruction as to how you choose one or a few or how you blend those together as a counselor after you graduate, I think. And I think that's you know, a, a def, definitely a deficit in the field because maybe there are a lot of people out there who think they they practice a theory, but they really actually don't know that much about it because no one's guided them as, as to what the next steps are. And so I think that was definitely missing for me, and it's not something I really gave a lot of thought to until I was in a doctoral program because I wasn't necessarily pushed to have a guiding orientation uh, for the work that I was doing. 
Yeah, there are no lot of parameters or it's not like an exact science to mm-hmm. find the best fit in terms of a theory for both yourself and then what are the steps to really becoming an expert in it. As you reflect back on that growth process for you, almost reverse engineering, like how you got to where you are, what were some of those practical steps that you began to implement to develop a greater competency or, well, I guess first identifying a theory that seemed like a good fit and then becoming more of an expert in it? Sure. I think this is, I wish it were a little bit more elegant of a process, but it was more out of sheer desperation when I was a doctoral student, <laughs> uh, where I also had to start thinking of an internship uh, site pretty early on in the program because it's very limited um, when you're a doctoral student. And so I was just searching around for different places in the Washington, D.C. area. And one of them that I knew a former student had uh, been placed at was the Bowen Center uh, in Washington, D.C. And so I was asking her about it. But my initial thought was, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not interested in family stuff. My family's fine. Like, that's not interesting to me. I'd rather work with individuals and individual theories. But, you know, I started reading more about it and, and found it really interesting. And the fact that they had a postgraduate program where you could continue your education, you know, after school was really interesting to me. And so I got connected with someone there. And what I found intriguing was that they wouldn't let you do any internship there until you had worked on yourself in your own family and I found that really intriguing (laughs) that they wanted you to do the work personally before they would take take you on and teach you how to do it with other people Um, which I guess is not that uncommon I don't know if people who are you know doing psychoanalytic stuff or or other theories I'm assuming they have to have some proof of the work I have no idea but um yeah so I started to go and meet with the woman who was the director at the center uh, as a sort of coach they call it coaching but you know it's it's counseling and I found it really interesting I was thinking about my own family differently and my own life and it was incredibly applicable and you know um you would know this better than I would probably but isn't there their research that you know counseling is more effective if the counselor believes in the actual theory that they're using. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's like, there's a greater sense of just genuineness and comfortability on the part of uh, the counselor as well, which helps with the rapport. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's not necessarily always what theory you're using. It's, you know, whether you found it effective and whether you can articulate it well or not. And so, Uh, Yeah, so I was learning more about Bowen theory and the concepts, and I was learning to kind of be a, very slowly, I I definitely am not bragging about this, uh, a calmer, sort of more mature person in my own family. And so, yeah, so I latched onto it and started learning more about it, and I guess the the rest is history. It's uh, sort of the way I think about things and the framework that I use, and, you know, I think that was a challenge, you know, being in a doctoral program where people are using different theories and you're in a a simultaneous educational program being told, no, this is how we think about things. And you have to kind of balance both of those ideas in your head at the same time as a student is challenging. (laughs) And I don't think I did it particularly well. I probably was pretty annoying in my program to other people, you know, butting in and saying, well, have you thought about it this way? You know, but, you know, most of those people are my friends and they probably forgive me for that. But uh, I was very excited to learn about it. So I probably was a little too enthusiastic uh, in my doctoral program. 
Well, I really appreciate your humility and your just honesty, your willingness to be vulnerable. And you acknowledge that it was a challenging time of kind of balancing seemingly contradictory or disparate perspectives on how one can approach the profession of counseling. What are some of those other areas where just intellectually grappling with certain issues or just in the day-to-day, you found like counseling school was a struggle? Graduate school in general is, is a struggle, right? You don't always get all the information that you need, and that's not necessarily anyone's fault, right? It's just that you're working with people in academia who also have a thousand and one responsibilities and their own professions to worry about. Um, you know, I think I think one of the challenges for me was that uh, I wasn't necessarily interested in being an academic. And I didn't, but when you're in a doctoral program, that's the focus, right? Uh, but I think with counseling and psychology, a lot of people end up in other professions. And so there wasn't as much um, focus on, you know, okay, do you want to run a business? You know, uh, how do you get, this is what you do to get licensed. I don't think that programs always do a great job sort of walking through the those steps with students. Um, you know, so I think... Or how, you know, my profession is writing. So how do you write in, to a popular audience? How do you do non-academic writing? And I think the that if that's not the purpose of your program, that's fine. But I think a lot of uh, programs could benefit from maybe thinking a little bit more flexibly about career options for their students. Um, because I, counseling is a little bit different because it is a growing field and there are it might be easier to find a, an academic job than if you're a history professor or an English professor, right? Um, but I think uh, just not having as much of uh, guidance as to what I was going to do after I graduated. You know, I think I had one person tell me once, you know, when I published something online, they said, well, don't get distracted. You need to be doing research and thinking about your dissertation, you know? <laughs> So to them, that was a that was a distraction from what I was supposed to be doing, you know, and mo- most people were overwhelmingly supportive and interested in what I was doing. But I don't think that um, people were maybe as an imaginative as they could have been for the students and, and what they could be doing after they graduated. Well, when I look at kind of your list of accomplishments and then also just your very active newsletter, you know, you've been very intentional and very successful at just like how prolific your output has been. What really pushed you to kind of pursue something that was creative and outside of the box and not necessarily something that those who were mentors in your life were maybe pushing you to do? Well, I have a little bit of a history of writing before I went to graduate school. So I worked uh, as a freelance reporter uh, for a couple of newspapers when I was younger. And so I have that somewhat of a writing background and I found it interesting But I also was kind of looking around and seeing, okay, there's a need for this, especially on the internet, different websites and whatnot. And there are people who do it who aren't clinicians, but then there are clinicians who just don't know how to write in that way. And sort of that niche felt like it fit for me, right? And it was, I had people start to contact me to hire me that I hadn't even reached out to and the fact that someone was willing to like give me a job that I hadn't asked for made me stop and go okay maybe (laughs) maybe I can make a profession out of this you know um and it just afforded me a lot of flexibility in grad school you know when and I when I wasn't before I was licensed right you know I couldn't necessarily find work that 
paid well, you know, you can find some things, but it's a, it's a hard life uh, before you get licensed to really make it work, uh, especially if you're in graduate school. So, you know, I started writing for places for free. I would reach out to publications and say, hey, can I write for you? And then eventually I started saying, well, okay, you need to, need to pay me to do this um, once I kind of got it in there. Um, but I think there are lots of opportunities for uh, students and for counselors, whether you want to make it a profession or not. You know, if you're just doing it to benefit your clinical practice, um, you know, or to, you know, benefit your academic work, you know, I do a lecture every year at, at George Washington to, to some of the students about how to write for a popular audience as part of their academic career. You know, I think a lot of professional organizations have magazines and, and websites and they need content, right? So it's useful for them to have people who are who want to submit something or write. So I, that's probably veering a little bit from the question that you asked. But uh, yeah, so I just, it, the opportunity started to open up and, and it felt like um, I wasn't the kind of person who wanted to be seeing 40 clients a week. I knew that personally that would kill me. And so I needed some other way to make a living than being a full-time counselor. Yeah, it sounds like a, I guess when I think about the life of a writer, like a re- really glamorous lifestyle, and yet like it's such a grind. And you said <laughs> there was that period of time where you're writing for free, and then it's like, okay, you know, I have enough of a resume that you need to pay me. But how do you make the transition from blog posts and magazine pieces or your newsletter to writing a full-fledged book, mm-hmm. which you've written two, I believe? Yes, so I have, I wrote one uh, called The Fangirl Life, which is not that really it's definitely not related to Bowen theory it was just sort of a pet fun project I did because I'm very nerdy and identify as a fangirl and I thought what nobody's written a self-help book about this let's do that um and then I have one coming out on New Year's Eve of this year called everything isn't terrible and it's basically a book about Bowen theory in sort of everyday language for people who who struggle with anxiety and yeah so that was something as I was getting published in different uh, publications, I set goals for myself. So I said, you know, my goal is to get reject, get rejected from increasingly impressive places. So that was kind of a, putting a different spin on it. Like, not like I need to be published in this newspaper or this magazine, but I need to put myself out there and get rejected from them so I'm not just playing it safe and doing what I've always been doing. And so... This one project that I had worked on and, and been writing, what my goal for that was to submit it to a literary agent and get rejected from them. <laughs> and so I sent it to a couple people, and one of the people actually thought it was an interesting idea. And so that's sort of how I came about uh, getting an agent and uh, her selling the book to a publisher, which is really cool. And so... You know, I think it's a really challenging thing. I think for me, the first book, it was such a particular idea idea uh, and it was the right place at the right time that I got lucky I think most people you know you're querying agents for a really long time um, that's it's a little bit different than if you're going through an academic publisher or writing you know a textbook or course materials or things like that uh, but it is possible you know I think it's easier to write a book as a counselor or a therapist than a novelist, right? Um, <laughs> because pe- more people buy self-help books than than novels. Um, not that novels aren't amazing, but that's just the reality. So it is an option that I don't think a lot of people think about, or it's somewhere at the back of their brain, and they just don't push themselves to get rejected or fail along the way. 
Well, tell me more about your book, Everything Isn't Terrible. What are some of the things that you hope your readers would be able to take away from it, or what types of information are you looking to impart? Yeah, so it is similar to the weekly newsletter that I write, which lately I haven't been doing this um, because I've been on maternity leave, but I started writing uh, these sort of little vignettes about different clients that I have worked with uh, on their families or, or other issues. And, you know, when you're a counselor and you write about people that you work with, you have to be incredibly careful to protect their confidentiality. So when I write a story, it's usually a a vignette that's a composite. So it's usually a couple people that I've worked with and I combine their stories because they all have sort of a similar theme or arc. And then I change the identifying information. So nobody would look at it and go, oh my God, (laughs) my therapist, my counselor is writing about me. That's not going to happen. They might look at it and go, oh, that's interesting. I worked on some of that with her, but you know, it's nothing that's specific. So I really enjoyed writing it in sort of a narrative form and, you know, telling just a very brief story and how usually how I failed or didn't do exactly what I was supposed to do. But somehow things ended up, you know, being a little bit helpful for a person and for myself. Or I would share things about working on myself and my own life or my family. And people sort of found that interesting. And so I thought, you know, well, what if I did a whole book sort of of these different essays and so the book is basically uh stories about clients that i have worked with and into it are tied the concepts of bowen theory and um basically each section of the book addresses a different uh sort of arena of life so the first book is about the first part is about yourself the second part is about relationships uh the third part is about work uh, and work relationships and then the fourth is about sort of the world in general you know, things we struggle with, like the internet, politics, etc. Um, so, you know, but a person reading it doesn't have to have a knowledge of, of counseling or of Bowen theory to get something out of it. You know, it's, uh, I don't think it's going to be a bestseller because it's honest about change being slow and hard and a lifelong process. And I know that that's not what people or insurance companies are looking for <laughs> from counselors. Uh, you know, so I am very honest about that, but I hope that people will find some, you know, some exercises and stories that can help them be a little bit more observant about how their anxiety kind of runs the show and is this autopilot way of functioning that we all kind of revert to when we feel stressed and hopefully people can think about how to shut that off a little bit and and be the kind of people that they want to be in in those important relationships. Yeah, I find it really interesting that you said that your newsletters were kind of a springboard for this book. And just even listening to how you characterize the narrative of how you came to write the book and what you hope people would take away from it very much mirrors kind of the tone and style of your newsletter, which, you know, when we were corresponding by email, I said I just really love and enjoy reading. I I can't recommend them enough to the listeners um, because it's like such a great mix of humor and you're self-deprecating, but that self-deprecating anecdote is like, I think of it as a clinical self-disclosure, like it's very purposeful and it's uh, not meant just for the sake of humor, but it's imparting some deeper information in a way that really just humanizes you. And really, I think um, it's really just an engaging way to kind of communicate the message that you're looking to convey. And one of the things you wrote recently in a newsletter said, uh, I still spend a great deal of time and energy guessing whether others perceive me as annoying. And I just thought like, wow, what a rare and special thing to hear a therapist say. 
And I just was wondering if you would speak more about ways in which you've chosen to be vulnerable and self-disclose on the internet and kind of if others are considering doing the same, what might be some uh, cautions and considerations for them that maybe you've learned just by trial and error? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, at least in in your work as a counselor, it, it is really important, you know, because I think it's an, an a misconception that you're not supposed to have anxiety if you're a counselor <laughs> or that you don't have challenging relationships, you know, with people in your family or your children or whatever, you know, and everyone knows, everyone kind of knows that if you're human, right? That's sort of par for the course. But I think counselors have, you know, um, especially with their presence online or on the internet, that they have to be kind of this robot, you know, enigma. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but nothing, none of your personality can kind of leak out or people will think you're a weirdo or whatnot. Um, you know, I mean, ob- there's the obvious consideration, right? Like if you work for an institution or an organization, they might have rules about that. You know, I am very lucky because I am self-employed. So I can talk about a television show and be silly on the internet and nobody's going to fire me for that. You know, maybe a prospective client might look at that and go, okay, that's not really my style. I want somebody a little more serious. (laughs) And that's totally fine. It's probably good for them to know that we might not be a good match. Um, But I think, I don't know if this is increasingly a millennial thing. I've been told this by people uh, who are my, my parents' age, so maybe it's true, but that Millennials are sort of increasingly comfortable with having this personal presence online. So a person might have a professional account, but also post about things about their own life. And there's a little bit more comfort with that, maybe than people who are a few decades older or of a different generation. Um, But I think it does go back to, you know, does it affect your employment? What are the rules? Um, You know, if even if you are self-employed, I mean, I have a really strict rule for myself of never uh, sharing about people I've worked with specifically on Twitter or Facebook or elsewhere. You know, I, I see this with young counselors sometimes who are just starting out and I cringe a little bit because they'll post something that says, just saw my first client today or had a really great session and like this person had this interesting quote and I'm just thinking, oh yeah, but what if this person is following you and, you know, now, <laughs> you know, I think just um, anything that's specific and immediate, you have to be kind of careful about with the work. Um, but, you know, I am pretty relaxed about sharing about my own life because I am a writer and I think that that's just what I'm choosing to write about. And I have never come across anybody who's a client of mine who's been weirded out by it. Most people say, oh yeah, I looked you up and I saw your, your Twitter or, you know, I read this weird fangirl thing you wrote. And I do cringe a little bit because I am human and it is a little embarrassing to be examined like that. But uh, I haven't encountered anybody that has been scared off by it. I'm sure people have, but I never have to interact with them. So it's okay. <laughs> Are there other positive comments or feedback you've received where it seemed to have enhanced your digital image or, uh, you know, really drawn perspective clients to you? Yeah, absolutely. And what's great is that some people will read some things I've written that pertain to them and they're all kind of, I mean, I live in DC, right? So there are all these overachievers that end up coming to, to therapy and counseling. So it's a little bit of a different crowd maybe, but they're, they're ready to go. They're already thinking about some of the things I've written about and that's really exciting. 
I mean, that's one of the reasons that I wrote this 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 book that's coming out, you know, is because people are always asking me what I recommend that they read. And I have plenty of books that I can recommend to them, but I really wanted to, to be able to give them something that was my own ideas and that could supplement the work that they were doing on themselves. If they choose not to, that's completely fine. I wouldn't want somebody to feel pressured to, to buy a book, but, uh, you know, being able to have that added resource uh, is great. And so I do uh, tell people about my newsletter. That's one of the reasons I write it is because I like to be able to refer to a free resource people don't have to pay money for and say, if you want to follow along with this, you know, it is about the work that I'm doing with other people and you might find it useful. Or if I've worked with people for a while and they want to take a break, they're doing okay, but they will still want to stay plugged into some of these ideas, they can do that. So nobody um, emails me about them and say, about their personal lives and say, help, says, help me out with this. I don't have that issue of having to set that boundary. So it's nice to have people who are, who are interested and want to take it a step further than just the counseling room. What are some areas of the internet that maybe are not of particular interest to you, but you feel like are kind of untapped resources that can be creative outlets for mental health professionals to create additional content that could be of service to the public? Yeah, I mean, I think a newsletter is the way to go. You know, I have this book coming out and I've been reading a lot about marketing and sort of one of the general ideas is that if you can get permission to contact people on a regular basis, that is so much more valuable than having a blog or a really huge social media following because most people don't look at every post on their Facebook feed, right? But most people open most of their emails, right? There are definitely exceptions. Um, but, and you can take that list with you wherever you go, right? Whereas Facebook controls how many people see something you post maybe on your counselor page, right? <laughs> and you have to pay money for more people to see it. And so, you know, having a regular email letter is, is something that I would definitely recommend to people. Um, and, there are ways of um, taking that content then because you own it and maybe tweaking it or polishing it or making it a little bit more applicable to a publication and then sending it to it. That's I do that sometimes, you know. Um, another a good resource, I think, is Medium. You know, that's something where you can post essays. It's, it's sort of a blog fo format, but it's more of a, a feed that shows up for people. And so I think having different essays... And writing on Medium is really great for counselors because people will be searching for those topics. Um, and you don't necessarily have to be pitching it to an editor, right? Uh, but there are publications on Medium where people will contact you and say, hey, can would you like to be a part of this site or this, you know, this publication? We would like to use this essay that you posted, right? So that's a, a resource that I dec definitely recommend for people who or maybe feeling a little bit overwhelmed and they don't necessarily want to start writing for a magazine or for a professional organization. Um, but I wouldn't rule out professional organizations either. You know, I've done a lot of writing for the ACA's counseling today um, as a, as some as journalism. So interviewing people who are presenting at conferences and whatnot, but they also just need essays from people who are doing the work. You know, that doesn't mean that they'll always get accepted, but you know, these places need content. And so if you're being helpful to them by providing it, then, you know, it's a win-win for both of you. 
as you mentioned earlier, you kind of have like the non-traditional lifestyle of a clinician. You know, you're not seeing, say, more than 20 clients a week. What does the average week look like for you? Well, it, my last year has been kind of crazy because I've had a baby and I really wanted to just take off and Sorry, I had a baby and a book deal. <laughs> so I had two children that needed my attention. Um, so I haven't been seeing clients uh, since last November. I am going to start up a couple of evenings a week uh, next month. So I'm not actively seeing people at the moment. Um, before, I was seeing around 20 people a week um, at the practice I was at. And then uh, started kind of doing my own thing and developing my own practice and, and doing a lot of writing projects as well. So... I don't know what the ideal number is going to be for me. I think that remains to be seen with my life and my family <laughs> at the moment. Uh, but I definitely know I am not a full-time clinician. I have friends and colleagues who can do that, and they are masterful. But I uh, I need to be alone with my thoughts for a certain amount of time during the week. Well, could you speak more about maybe what's especially rewarding about curating what your week's going to look like and you know spreading out your passions and interests? Yeah, I mean, it just leaves space for me to be curious about what I want to be curious about, you know, and that is a, a privilege and a luxury in and of itself that I that I have that flexibility and the ability to do that. But I think, you know, um, if the goal is just to, well, it just depends on your personal goal. And mine has never been to develop this sort of huge thriving therapy counseling practice um, which for a lot of people that is their goal it's what they really take pride in Um, you know for other people it's research and being published and contributing to the field in that way and then seeing some clients on the side I think that is what's so great about the counseling profession is that (laughs) you know um, for a while I was uh, sort of uh, a I can't remember exactly what my title was. It's been a few years. But basically, I was uh, a check person at a nonprofit who needed somebody to sign off on the clinical work that people were doing um, and come in and do trainings a few hours a week, right? And that was sort of a part-time gig. So the field is just so ripe for assembling sort of different interests together. And I think that keeps things fresh and keeps you interested and maybe introduces topics or populations you know that you're working with that you maybe hadn't thought about before um so in that sense it's a really great profession to be in it has its challenges but because there are so many different ways that you can make a living it's pretty great (laughs) well as you anticipate going back into clinical work are there particular issues or um, just particular aspects of clinical work that you especially miss and you're excited to kind of revisit again Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because my, uh, you know, theoretical background is Bowen theory, I love talking about people's families. You know, it's the, it's the topic that interests me the most. And so I find myself not doing counseling with people, but just people I'm meeting. I'm like, oh, like, where are you and your family? Like, what's your sibling position? (laughs) Uh, You know, tell me, you know, about your family history, you know, just because I'm naturally curious about people's lives and sort of how their families fit into their story. And so I definitely, you know, when I meet with a client for the first time, what I do is I draw, you know, I have a notepad, I draw their diagram. And so, um, you know, I just love doing that and, un- and uncovering those facts and-, and learning about a new family. And so, and helping a-, a person become interested in that themselves versus 
being annoyed by it or, you know, not that curious about it. So I'm most excited about getting back into it. And it's so nerdy, but drawing those diagrams and just helping people think about that. (laughs) Something you mentioned both now and in a previous newsletter is just like how curious you are. And could you speak more about how that curiosity has served you well as a clinician and kind of imparting to your clients just how interested you are in getting to know more about them and their families? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the a challenge and a benefit of the field is that nobody really has it change figured out and how people actually change. If we did, then we'd all be out of jobs <laughs> and then everyone could just go do that thing, right? And so that's why we have the profession in, in the first place. Uh, But also, you know, the idea that humans are interesting and, you know, the same thing doesn't necessarily work for every person and that, you know, being curious about what motivates people and what helps them think differently about their situation, you know, that uses a different part of your brain, right, than the part that's just anxious and stressed and I call it the lizard brain. So the, you know, your fight or flight you know, being curious sort of unlocks that part of you that's uniquely human that wants to problem solve and set goals and do other things. And so, you know, I think that's what I talk to my clients about a lot. You know, if it's not necessarily jumping in and trying to do something differently in your life, it's just the act of observing changes things because you're using a different part of your brain. And when you're curious, you calm down a little bit, (laughs) which is great. So... You know, I try and remind myself that if I can stay really interested in a client, that's more useful to them than me trying to fix their situation or tell them what to do. Because if I'm interested and I'm curious, then I'm not adding to the anxiety in the room. And maybe they can think a little bit better about what they actually want to do and what's useful for them. So I think to answer your question, I think curiosity helps me stay out of the way. And not be too helpful to people, which I think for a lot of counselors is is a big problem because we love to help so much that we just get in the way sometimes. Well, I'm really curious. Could you tell me about your work and involvement with the Bowen Center? So the Bowen Center is great because all of the faculty, they're volunteers. So we have benefited from the theory and we think that the theory helps us professionally. So we dedicate our time to help other people learn about it. So... There's an online program, there's an in-person program for clinicians, um, and it's not just clinicians, it's really interesting. It's clergy, people, business leaders, anyone who kind of wants to think from a systems perspective, they can come and get training there. And, uh, you know, but then there's other people who just want to come to conferences that we do or, you know, different online lectures. And so we kind of just pitch in as needed when we have a topic that's interesting to us or we want to take a turn and and do a presentation. Um, So it's a wonderful community for people who don't necessarily want to be academics but want to stay plugged into that type of thinking, which is really great. Um, One of the things I love about uh, the Bowen Center community is that they do clinical conferences. So once a month, someone will actually present a video of themselves working with a client who's given them permission to use it. And clinicians will come and watch the video and ask questions. And I don't know about you, but when I was in my graduate programs, other than like the videos that came with your textbooks, 
what actually happened in the room was kind of a mystery. You know, <laughs> you didn't exactly know what everyone else is doing, but you hope that you were kind of doing the same thing or you were doing what you were supposed to. So it's really nice to be able to see someone who's, you know, been in the field for 30 or 40 years, you know, to, to watch the work that they do and the questions that they ask and, you know, take a lot of notes. So that's not something that I've done. I'll probably do that in the future, but that's been a really great resource to me to just watch the, watch the process and watch it happen, you know, in a video. When you think about that process of watching others, maybe who might be masters at that craft, what are some of the major takeaways you've walked away with and just getting to witness those examples? I pay really close attention to every word that comes out of the clinician's mouth. I often will just write down every single question that's asked. And what I notice is literally just that they're incredibly curious and they're helping the person do their best thinking. There's not a lot of suggestions being made or, you know, uh, trying to fix or calm a person down. Um, you know, there, there are differences from theory to theory, right? But I think that's a pretty common thing regardless of where, you know, where you're coming from or what your theoretical orientation is, is to you know, just help to promote the other person's thinking versus forcing your thinking onto that person. And so, you know, I think the most skilled clinicians probably say the least. I can definitely say that for, um, for my, the supervisor at the Bone Center who's worked with me over the years of my own life, you know, she's never ever made a suggestion to me, (laughs) uh, you know, and, uh, she's just kind of got out of the way and helped me do my best thinking and, you know, maybe brought up a concept here or there, but there's very little teaching involved. I think when a, a, a counseling student or a, a new clinician learns a theory, that's the initial instinct is to teach the client what you've learned and, and what the concepts are because A, we're so excited about it and B, we don't really know how to impart it in another way than just <laughs> becoming a lecturer. So I think that's that's a challenge for me still, you know, not to be a, a teacher. Do you find that there's maybe a balance between the extreme of never teaching or offering a suggestion and then maybe what you might be more inclined to do? How do you kind of integrate maybe or find the, the moderate approach between those two extremes? Yeah, I mean, that's usually when I'm going to self-disclose or I often I will share a story about say my own family if I and how I failed it's not like look what I did this is great it's like oh yeah okay I went home for Thanksgiving for the 10th time and even though I did this like you know I still got sucked into this dynamic or whatever um just to be able to kind of add a little bit of humor to the situation you know that doesn't mean that I won't um you know get out a whiteboard and sort of draw the process or what it is they're explaining to me and help them see it maybe a little bit differently or that I don't offer a different perspective or a different idea um but I think if I'm trying to make them use a different vocabulary uh you know if you think that a person has to know all the concepts and all the words of a theory for it to be useful to them. I don't, I don't feel like that's the right direction. Um, it's got to speak for itself <laughs> in the questions that you ask and, and, you know, the, the framework that you're using. So I, I think, uh, vocabulary is important and that's what I, I stress a lot in the presentations that I give is that you don't need the jargon. And if you think you do, then, maybe you don't understand what the jargon actually means in the first place. (laughs) What are some other takeaways that you've kind of come to develop as kind of like tried and true 
tools or insights that you really work intentionally to implement, you know, as you progressed and grown in your career? Yeah, I mean, I have, and this is a, this is a Bowen theory thing. So there's the idea that if you want to kind of override your automatic way of functioning in the world, you really need guiding principles for yourself. And you can have those in general in life or in your family relationships, in your marriage. But I have them for my work as a, a counselor as well. So um, I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I've been seeing people. But one of mine is to step back and let people manage their own lives. And that's a really hard one for me uh, because I have great ideas about what people should be doing <laughs> or why they should break up with someone, right, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, if I can kind of hold on to that one and, you know, say that's different than distancing or, or saying this is not my problem, you know, good luck. That's not – that's different than – you know, being in the room with somebody, but also letting them be responsible for themselves. And that's a hard thing to do, um, especially if somebody is in really is in distress. They're in crisis. Right. There are things you can do to help them. But ultimately, people are responsible for themselves. And, you know, I think that's my guiding principle in the work is to share my thinking to calm myself down. I mean, maybe that's the biggest one is just to calm down, take breaths relax your body you know I think we forget to do that when we're working with people that you know just managing yourself and regulating yourself is such a huge part of the the work that if you're having a rough day or some other things are going on it can really kind of seep into what you're doing and so you know being responsible for myself and and my anxiety and letting other people do that as well are kind of the two things that I'm always trying to remember uh, when somebody's in the room are there aspects of your career or just general interest of yours that we haven't touched on yet that you would want to share with the audience? These days, Bowen theory is pretty much what I eat, you know, sleep and drink, <laughs> think about, um, especially having a kid myself, you know, that just adds to, to how you think about it and, and the kind of person you want to be as a parent. So not in particular. I mean, I don't, for a while, I had done a lot of mental health journalism and sort of interviewing people about other topics that I'm not necessarily uh, an expert, you know, at or things I don't know that much about. But I've, that's kind of taken a back burner, and I really enjoy writing about sort of what I'm studying and thinking about and, you know, thinking about how do I articulate that to, to people in a non-jargony way that's useful to them. So that's, you know, the challenge that I've been working on continually. Well, I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for the many you know, great humorous and honest stories that you've shared and for all of your insights. And I guess as we wrap up, I end each episode by asking a guest to think about a time in their life where maybe they thought about something in a particular way that, that wasn't quite helpful or it was just counterproductive. And they step back and they reframe that reality and the way in which they thought about it in that new way kind of made all the difference. The one thing I can think of is just a story of a client that I worked with. And I've actually written about this before in a couple different um, settings. But I had this one client once who was very unhappy with me. And that I'm not saying that everyone has always been happy with me. But if they weren't, they hit it really well or just didn't come back, right? <laughs> but this person was very uh, in, insistent on letting me know that I was not doing a good job. And so every week, you know, she would come in and say, well, can we focus on this instead? I don't want to talk about, 
you know, my family or my job or my health or whatever, you know, let's, let's work on this this week. And so I would pivot every time she came in and would try and make her happy and think about things exactly the way she wanted to think about them. Right. And so I was, my focus was completely on over-functioning and, uh, you know, managing her emotions and <laughs> how she felt, right? And so my uh, entire goal became on making her happy and preventing her from being upset with me, you know? And I I didn't lose tons of sleep over this because it wasn't, you know, a crisis situation or anything, but it was really frustrating. And I wasn't looking forward to her sessions, you know? I kind of hoped that maybe she would just not come back or go work with somebody else, um, but, you know, the more I thought about it, the the more I realized that this was a challenge for me to step back and let, like I just said, you know, let someone be responsible for themselves and to not abandon my own training and my own theory every time somebody wasn't happy with that, you know? And I think that's the temptation, especially when you're starting out as a counselor, is to just find what you can because it fits exactly what a client wants when that doesn't serve you or them particularly well. And so, you know, it ended up that, she, you know, I, I asked her if she thought she wanted to work with somebody else and she did, and I'm sure it was fine, you know? <laughs> um, but I think that was such a lesson for me in, you know, not being, this is a bone theory word, but, you know, not being an over-functioner, not being over-responsible for a client, um, being okay with people being not happy with your ideas or not finding them useful and that nobody, you know, that there's, the stakes aren't high over something like that. And so, you know, I think having that experience was so useful for me in working with other people to not immediately pivot and be this sort of counseling chameleon that just like, you know, changed the color of my ideas, right? Based on who was in the room, you know, and that, you know, I still have work to do on that. But I, when somebody comes to me, I can be really honest with them and say, this is the theory that I use. This is how I think about things. This is how the work is going to look like. You think about it and you can tell me whether you think that's going to be useful for you or not. And, you know, to not take it personally when people say that it isn't because they're saving us a whole lot of time <laughs> in the process, you know. And I think everyone kind of has to learn that lesson in their own time. But, you know, that experience where I could have just saw that as a failure on my part, you know, it ended up being useful for me to get a little bit, I don't know if tougher is the right word, but just to be a little bit more comfortable with myself and the thinking that I have chosen and being okay with the fact that other people might choose a different way of thinking about things. The Reframe is a production of the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join me next month on the reframe.